So we're going to move on to our sermon for this morning, and Kevin Larson, our lead pastor, will be preaching for us. Uh, The passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 13, and that can be found on page 976 in the House Bible in front of you. I invite you to stand um, and follow along as I read aloud Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Would you join me now in praying? Father, we thank you for today and the chance to gather. Um, We thank you for the way that you sustain us in all kinds of weather, in all kinds of seasons. Um, 
We thank you for your word and how you've given it to us to lead and to guide, to shape and convict and transform us in all seasons of life individually, in all seasons of life as a church family. I pray for Kevin now that you would speak powerfully uh, to and through him. God, as a church, would you give us ears to hear from you? Open our eyes to behold wonder and glory and beauty in your word. Make us, Father, the, the people that you desire us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to see so many of you this morning. I thought it might be just a few of us in a group hug today, but a bunch of you guys braved the temperatures and glad to, glad to see that. It's going to start out with a couple of questions as we begin to get into this passage. When people look at our church and the church in America, do you think they see evidence for the existence of God? Would they say, um, when I look at them, when I see their life together, I believe in God more, or at least I, I wish I could? And do you think as they look at our lives and as they look at our life together, that it helps them believe that the gospel changes things? Would non-Christians say, I want Jesus, I need Jesus, he's done something in them, and I want that in me? Yes, no? Why? Why not? Well, I want that to, us to have that in our minds as we um, begin our time here today. We're going to get back into Matthew next week, um, but I had today marked down as a special message the day before our, our country honors Martin Luther King Jr. Um, day. Um, Benga preached a couple of weeks back on New Year's Eve from Ephesians chapter 1, and he did a, a great job, by the way. But I thought I would just jump into Ephesians myself and talk about how the gospel brings the reconciliation our world needs. So in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes to Gentiles, that's non-Jews, that are scattered throughout what was called Asia Minor back then, but today is basically the nation of Turkey. And he tells them, Paul the Apostle does, in this letter about this amazing mystery that has come in Christ Jesus. Now today when we hear that word mystery, um, we often think of it more like this. It's like we're going out in the woods, maybe on a geocaching mission. I don't know if you've done that before, but we go out there, we're thinking, where's our treasure? It's hidden somewhere, it's a mystery. Maybe we'll find it, you know, if we're having a good day, if we're really smart. Maybe we'll just walk around in the woods for a while and we'll get lost, that kind of mystery. But biblically, I'd say it's a little bit more like, like this, like the time I took my wife out into an Arkansas forest to ask her to marry me. Now, I popped the, the question from the edge of this beautiful cliff, and she jokes that, you know, if, if she would have said no, I would have pushed her off, but that's false. But along the way, there were these signs that it was moving in that direction, right? Looking back, she said she could see them. In route, she definitely should have, if anything, you know, me sweating and mumbling and shaking and all that. But that's really more the, when we talk about a mystery, what we mean, the signs were there. She just missed them along the way, but she could then see them as she thought about it and talked about it from the other side. Paul tells us this mystery has been revealed. This mystery has been revealed. 
that all things would be united in Christ, that believers would experience union with Christ, and that we'd be unified together in the body of Christ. And that's where I largely want to spend our time today on that last statement, united together in the body. In Ephesians chapter one, until the the first half of chapter two, the apostle proclaims what God the Father has done in Jesus to make us right with him again. In the second half of chapter two, and the first part of chapter three, what we just read, Paul speaks of what God the Father has done in Christ to make us right with one another again. So in chapter two, verses one through three, maybe you're familiar with this book, we learn that we're dead in sin. But verse four starts out with those grand words, but God. And then in chapter three, verses 11 and 12, we hear how we've been alienated from each other, but verse 13 starts out with those big words, but now. So we were, we were held captive by the world, but God. We were at each other's throats, but now. So now things have changed, God has stepped in. So in Ephesians, it moves from this this vertical aspect of the gospel to the horizontal, and it's the horizontal that we're gonna talk about here for a while today. Now this, this passage holds so many sermons in it, but I don't want you to miss all the football games today, so I'm really just gonna focus on two aspects of these verses. First, what has been brought about in Christ And second, what Christ sends us out to proclaim. So the first, what has been brought about in Christ? So did you catch all that? It's it's glorious. There's this then and now aspect of these verses, then and now. The apostle is writing to these Gentiles, non-Jews, people like us, most of us, and he's proclaiming the great things that God has done. They were on the outside looking in. As verse 12 puts it, they were separated from Christ, but they were also alienated from the nation of Israel. The covenants, the promises, they weren't for them. They were without hope as a result, without God in the world, Paul says. And then there are those words again, but now in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, everything has changed. We were far off from him, from God's people, but now... You and I have been brought near by faith. Verse 14, he's made us both one. And there's this image here that's so important. There was this dividing wall of hostility and Jesus came and tore it down, right? Now it's possible that that Paul actually could have been thinking back to a literal wall. The one that was in the temple back in the day that kept the Gentiles out, now, that was, that was smashed back in 70 AD along with the, the whole structure by the Romans. But the apostle could be saying, basically, you don't have to live like that wall still stands. Verse 15 says that the law given to Israel to show them their need to drive them to Jesus was torn down. Jesus came and fulfilled it, what Paul calls the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So the playing field was leveled. Now all nations have access to the Lord through faith. And now we're on that same field, that worship field together. As Rich Villadis has put it, the cross of Christ isn't just a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down the walls that separate us. 
Jesus has brought us together. Paul goes on. He has created in himself one new man in place of the two. There now is peace. We've been reconciled together to God in one body, it says. The hostility has been killed. Christ came, it says, and proclaimed peace. Verse 17, to the far off, to the near, to Jews and Gentiles. We've, we've seemed to see that in Matthew, haven't we? And now through his spirit, verse 18, we have access to the Father and everything has been transformed. Look at verses 19 through 22 again. We're strangers and aliens no more. By faith in Christ, we're citizens together. We've been brought into this nation, but into a family, right? We're now a part of the household of God. And what's more is that we're all being joined together, all nations like spiritual bricks, making this new, greater, holy temple in the Lord. So think about this. We've moved from you all can't go in the temple to you all are the temple, right? That's amazing. So the then was something awful, but the now is something awesome. But let's not just assume, let's just not gloss over the how that we see here. How this came about. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13. The wall was torn down, and so was the veil in the temple. In his flesh, that's talking about his death. We've been reconciled together to God through the cross, says verse 16. So it's in him, through him, and for him that we're with our Father and we're together as a family, so all glory be to Christ our King. So hear me, this is the gospel, church. This is what Paul says is the mystery that was revealed. Not just that we would be united with God, but that we would be united with one another. Jew and Gentile, all nations on earth, and here in America, certainly black and white. And one common thing you can hear in the church um, when we talk about things like this is, come on, bro, stick to the gospel here. You know, stop talking about social issues. I want you to hear me say, church, this is a gospel issue. It could not be clearer from these Verses right here. It's what God does in Jesus. He brings people to himself. He brings people together. And it's a beautiful thing. It brings glory to him. And it's for our good, Karis. And this is what has been brought about in Christ and it's meant to be savored by us. One thing that we, we might say or we might have heard is, is like, hey man, I'd just, I just rather be colorblind. I don't, I don't think we should see color. I don't want to see color. I don't think that's what God wants, but is that really the case? I want you to think about the diversity and beauty of God's creation. We don't walk around in, in Glacier National Park trying to just see gray, just focusing on the utility of what we see. No, we take in, we marvel in his creation. We see glory, we see beauty. We don't walk around the, the farmer's market and sample foods and just think in terms of calories or nutrition. No, we eat, we drink, we rejoice in God's good gifts. 
In the same way, we need to see and savor the diversity of all of God's good gifts, and that should include the diversity of ethnicities and cultures that God has designed for us and has gifted to us. As my friend John Nelson puts it, we shouldn't be colorblind, but color-blessed. That's well put. But don't miss out on something else that's so important here. We're not just talking about diversity. We're talking about unity. We're not just getting a bunch of people in the same room to show we're, we're checking off boxes or that we're culturally sophisticated. No, we're not shooting for sameness, but not just diversity either. We're, we're striving for oneness. And Jesus can do that. He died to bring that. We're not just trying to tolerate one another. We're seeking again to enjoy, to savor one another. But the church in America has so much work to do, right? They, they say, you've probably heard that Sunday is the most segregated time in America. Sunday morning, I just quoted John Nelson. His mom grew up in Columbia. Back then, years ago, many years ago, when this was another church, she wasn't allowed to come in here as a young woman of color. Now those types of prohibitions, you know, we don't see those as much today, but there's still attitudes, there's still prejudices that keep us apart, that keep people out. And Jesus died again so that wall could be torn down. The great, the late great John Stott has said that when we do not live in this kind of unity, it's an offense to the cross of Jesus. He put it this way, John Stott, how dare we build walls of partition in the one and only human community in which he has destroyed them. But deliberately to perpetuate these barriers in the church and even to tolerate them without taking any active steps to overcome them in order to demonstrate the transcultural unity of God's new society is to set ourselves against the reconciling work of Christ and even to try to undo it. Those are intense words, right? We need to hear those and be struck by them. A friend named Jonathan Lehman um, recently wrote an article where he referred to the local church as the geography of heaven. I like that. The geography of heaven. So our gathering together, it's meant to be this little slice of heaven on earth. It's this place where Jesus rules as king, where things are on earth as they are in heaven, or at least they're supposed to be the locale of heaven on earth. If we're that place, we'll be one, right? Because that's what Jesus came to accomplish. But of course, we can say we love Jesus and completely miss out on the gospel. You know, each of us, of course, is battling to love one another as we've been loved by him. Sometimes this means in this world confrontation, there's this well-known story that's recorded in Galatians chapter two where Paul, who's the author here, has to confront the apostle Peter. Peter knew all this stuff. He'd preached this himself. You know, he had a vision from God that told him this in Acts. But you see him start to move over to the Jewish lunch table and begin to look down on the Gentile brothers and Paul had to call him out and he walked up to his brother and said, you're out of step with the gospel you got to repent. And we may have to do that at times, brothers and sisters. And it'll at times make people mad. 
But hear me, the very gospel of grace is at stake because Jesus came to make us one. But here's something we remind ourselves often at Karas. We're meant to not just keep this good news to ourselves, but we're meant to take this gospel out in community on mission together. So second, see what Christ sends us out to proclaim. Now in this section, in in chapter three, there's also a then and now aspect of it. But here Paul's talking about his calling, right? He reminds us of where he used to be and really where we all used to be. He calls himself in verse eight, the very least of all the saints. But he was given grace, not just to, to preach the good news, but to enjoy the gospel in the first place. He's writing here to Gentiles who at one point were living like the pagans they were, but but Paul was the good Jewish kid. He was following all the rules, even to the point where he was bullying the Gentile kids at recess. And the apostle makes clear that he was just as lost as they were, even more so, in fact, because again, he calls himself the least. But God woke him up, right? walking down the Damascus road. Now, verse one says he's a prisoner, a servant of Jesus, and of those Gentiles he once abused. He's been given this grace, this stewardship of the gospel for the good of the outsiders. Verse five says it's something previous generations, again, just couldn't grasp, this mystery. But it was revealed to apostles and prophets like him. And then he clearly, again, explains that mystery In chapter three, verse six, he writes, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So again, hear the good news for people of all nations, including us, we're all in the same body. We all get the same inheritance. The promises apply to all of us. This is the message the Lord called Paul to proclaim what he calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. He got the privilege, as it says in verse nine, to shine the spotlight on that mystery, the mystery that was hidden for ages that had now been revealed through our creator. And then in verse 10, we get to this beautiful world. It's manifold, manifold. Now, it can just mean that God's wisdom It says in this mystery has many forms. It comes in different ways. But I love the way John Stott defines this, and I think his arguments are sound. He says we should read it as multicolored, and then he writes this. The church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It's God's new society. And the many-colored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the many-colored, or many-splendored, to use Francis Thompson's word, wisdom of God. So again, not colorblind. That's not what we're striving for. But to see it and revel in it. So Carlos, that's what we get to proclaim Paul here, again, is an apostle with a capital A. He's one of God's messengers. He's also, again, the foundation for the church that God builds. But we've 
also been called, right? We also carry this message. We're apostles with a little a. And this message is that the people of God, those who now have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him, verse 12, are being bought and brought together as a multicolored community. So it's not like our building is built of these bricks that we see everywhere that just all look the same. No, this temple is a mosaic of stones of all different colors. And again, that's for our good and it's for our king's glory. And we get to preach that message. Now, back to seven, verse 17 of chapter two. Some have said that that isn't talking about Christ's ministry on earth because after all, we don't think Jesus ever came to Ephesus. We don't think he did. So most have argued that this is Jesus preaching through Paul and so many others throughout the years and you and me us going out saying, peace has come. Peace has come for all of us. If you feel like an insider, an outsider, peace has come. Again, we're God's messengers as well. My buddy John, again, that I've referenced a couple of times, he got to preach before the governor a couple years ago. And that was an honor, of course. But did you catch, did you grasp what this passage says in verse 10? With Paul, we get to make this manifold wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What's that mean? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Yeah, it's talking about angels, Chorus. Angels are our audience as we proclaim this, as we live this. So we get to go out and tell this in the world that the Father is bringing us to him through union in Christ, that we're being brought together, reconciled through Christ's work on the cross, but we also get to shout it to the heavens. We get to help the angelic beings understand the fuller beauty of what God has done. So gathering people groups of the world together in breathtaking unity, we get to tell the the angels that. But the tragedy, of course, is there's so much work to be done in our nation, in the church, to see that reality. D.A. Horton, a pastor and scholar, likes to say that we really shouldn't talk about reconciliation in America. That's because that, that, that prefix re, that implies that you're doing it again, that it's existed before. He says, no, we're seeking conciliation here. This for the first time. But here's the tragedy is you read this passage with me, I think it's pretty clear that this is something that Christ has already accomplished. Right, 2,000 years ago. We just have to see it. We just have to experience it. But so often we resist it, right? Sometimes when you talk about something like this, the response can be, hey, why are we talking about politics in here? You know, this is the church. But I've just been hearing God's word, right? Haven't been talking about Republicans or Democrats. But I have been giving, I believe, a vision for life under King Jesus. That's the only politics that I care about. Our king, his kingdom. Are you with me in that? 
This isn't proclaiming some worldly philosophy. This isn't me shouting out some political theory. This is the mystery of the gospel of grace according to Paul the apostle who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. God wants us to savor what he's done in Christ, but he also wants us to go and spread it. Through our words, talking about the reconciliation Jesus has won, but also through our actions, through the relationships we make, through the stands we take. We don't just need talk, you know, we need walk, right? Columbia, you may know, has a, a history of segregation and racial injustice. There's still plenty of work to be done. You, you probably haven't heard of, some of you may, but of what was once called Columbia's sharp end. It's been pretty much forgotten because it was torn down through urban renewal initiatives back in the day. But from around 1900 through probably the 50s or 60s, there existed this this vibrant black business district between 5th and 6th streets on Walnut, downtown. It was the center of the black community here in Columbia until it got raised and stolen from people of color. That's the legacy that we have to deal with here, friends, in our city. It's no wonder there's still tension today. But if we don't stand against it, Stott also said, it's not just an offense to Christ, it's an offense to the world. Why trust God? Why embrace the gospel? If we, his people, can't figure this out, So, hear what Christ has done and also what Christ will do. The gospel, again, is Jesus reconciling us to God, reconciling us to one another. The gospel is all about the cross on which he died, but it's also about the kingdom that his death brings. So one day, Jesus will come through the clouds. He'll bring heaven to earth His reign will be one of perfect justice and peace. That's what he'll do. And there will be no walls in that nation that will cover the globe. And it will also, again, gloriously be made of many colors. Hear these words from Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what's coming. And as we've heard Jesus say in Matthew, that kingdom, though, has already come. And we get to go out and proclaim that now. And we also get to go and pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, which includes your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we want to see more and more of the reign of Jesus now. So we go out together and say, this is the kingdom that will one day come in full. Let's pray hard. Let's pursue it with all our might. Let's trust God for big things and let's not settle for any more of this demonic division. In that article I mentioned earlier from Jonathan Lehman, he also argued that we're to be an embassy of heaven. I love that term. Have you thought about our calling like that as an embassy? Where we're in this nation that isn't fully our home 
and we say, hey, we're to represent the kingdom of Jesus. Here's how things are meant to be. Here's how things are going to be. Black and white, brown and tan, all together in unity. Come, learn his ways, submit with us. Be citizens of heaven. Be, be children of the kingdom. That's our privilege, Karis. That's our calling. I said earlier that it can involve confrontation, but it also often involves resistance as we stand against injustices in our world. Now, some would say that racial reconciliation happens just on an individual level. As more people trust Jesus, learn to love like him, that's the only way things are gonna change. That, no doubt, is a major part of the equation. But others speak up and say, hey, if peace and justice are gonna come, it's only gonna come as the systems in our nation get toppled and transformed. And that would only make sense, too, because the systems are made up of sinners that are shaped ruled by sin, right? So the answer, like so much in life, is that it's both and. And the gospel gives something so much greater. As we go out and we spread what Christ has done and what Christ will do, we tell people about Jesus and the unity that he brings. We also labor to call out and bring changes to systemic issues in our government, in our economics, Because we live, as Jesus put it, in a world that still is in some sense under Satan's power. We can't just stand there. We can't stay silent because that speaks volumes to those who suffer. We have to long for justice for brothers and sisters as well. We can't talk about unity in here and then not care what people experience, quote, out there, right? Read the annals of church history the, the early church, Christ brought people together of many nations and that ragtag group of people, they spoke for the weak in a way that jarred the Roman Empire. You might say, well, that's, that's something that's coming in the new world. This world is so sinful, there's only so much we can do, so we should just wait and let Jesus take care of it someday. I grew up in a small town Um, small town ways and a few years back from now too. But back then, I remember changing the oil with my dad in my car and um, what'd you do with your oil? Well, that wasn't a problem. You just drain it right there in the ditch where you're at, right? But if we look forward to an earth that's gonna be renewed, why would we act in ways that would anticipate that right now? Why would we team up with Satan and just try to trash God's planet as much as we could? And why wouldn't we anticipate the unity that will be there and then, here and now also? My dad also is an expert woodworker, and he taught me how to sand, so I can't build much, some simple things, but I can refinish things pretty well, and I know how to sand boards, and if you want to make them smooth, what do you do? You, you go with the grain. You don't go against the grain or you end up destroying the wood. Why would we not go with the grain of what God is doing instead of working against it with our enemy? Why wouldn't we look ahead to all that unity in heaven and do whatever we could to start it here and now in our day? 
Jesus calls us to take this mystery out into the world, into our city. Well, I want to take a few moments to talk about how we could grow in this together. Just some basic thoughts. The first thing I want to give you is is that we have to let this gospel have its way in us. What do I mean? Well, we have to soak in all of what God says here in Ephesians 2 and 3. Where we were, where we are now, how Jesus accomplished it all, that has to grip our hearts. It has to fill us with gratitude. It has to move us toward welcome. To welcome those around us in the same way that we've been welcomed by God our Father. That's where it has to start. So we have to pray for renewal, for joy in the gospel, to have that break our hearts again. Second, we have to respond in ways that fit with its truth. We can't believe some facts in our head about what Jesus did and then let our hands or our mouths say something else entirely. We can't go around preaching gospel doctrine and then not have gospel culture. And the culture Christ brings has no walls and it has all sorts of colors. If we grasp the gospel of grace, we'll respond before anything in everything with humility. That's so foundational. We'll own our sins. We'll recognize our ignorance. We'll shut our mouths and listen. We'll ask questions instead of talking. We'll learn from our brothers and sisters that don't look like us. And that'll take us a long way forward to figuring some of this out. We'll also no doubt be willing to sacrifice. Yeah, our time, our talent, our treasure, but our comfort, our preferences, that's really where the rubber hits the road if we're going to see gospel racial reconciliation and justice here in America. My friend Eric Shoemaker, he's been a pastor in Iowa for a number of years, and in one, one afternoon he was on a walk in his neighborhood, and as he, he was walking down the street, he kept noticing um, people... Um, women especially would, would cross over to the other side of the street. And then a block or so later, they'd, they'd come back to his side of the street and it kind of jarred him. He thought, what's going on here? I don't think it had anything to do with COVID or anything like that. Um, but then it hit him. He'd been on vacation for a few weeks. His facial hair had gotten really scruffy. He's wearing all these raggedy layers of flannel to keep warm. He looked pretty homeless. He looked fairly dangerous, I guess, maybe to these people. Eric said that this experience helped him to learn to walk in the experience of others, to look at things from the other side of the street. I think that would do us good as well. Another friend leads a church up in Harlem. His name's Jason James, and I have a lot of respect for the guy. I've been able to worship with him a couple of times. Um, In an article he wrote a few years back, he explained three things that he says we have to do to get rid of racism in the church. He says, proclaim, process, practice. So we have to be willing to talk about it, and we have to sit there and listen to it, like we have today. So it has to be taught, it has to be proclaimed. We have to do the hard work of talking it through together, listening, seeking understanding, having hard conversations 
process. And then he says we have to practice. And yeah, we, we sometimes make mistakes with that. So we have to be gracious to one another. You get to work. And James, though, says that the reality is that in the church, some people experience belonging just naturally. And others, though, most of the time experience displacement. And he writes this. It's a little complicated, so I'll kind of boil it down. But he says, but what if there was a way to leverage the inevitable experience of simultaneous displacement and belonging for discipleship? So what if we just lean into that tension? What if we could intentionally create belonging for those who are most vulnerable to racism, marginalization, and displacement, but do so in a way that is not only disoriented for the majority who don't share the same ethnicity, culture, experiences, but is also beneficial for their growth in Christ. So he says here, if the, if the majority, if they're willing to follow Christ and get out of their comfort zones, it would allow those in the minority to begin to belong. And he also says that those who humble themselves and are willing to sacrifice, the result will be that they'll grow in the process. There'll be sanctification of the spirit that will result. So we can process together what that looks like. It could have to do with music we sing or or food we eat or just various traditions that we practice. But I think that's sound advice. Can we, as a church, Karas, proclaim and process and practice together? And I didn't ask him about this, but I'm sure he would add a a fourth P. You know, it has to be a P, but it's an easy one. Prayer to the mix. Because that's where Paul goes in this section right after these verses. Verses 14 through 21. Paul goes off praying that we would, his people would more and more see and experience the grace of God. So we pray, we plead to God that he'll help us as we pursue this. Last week is when much of the church celebrated and historically celebrated what's called epiphany. You maybe haven't heard of that, but it's when God's people have traditionally, historically remembered the wise men, the magi, coming to worship at the feet of baby Jesus. What were the implications of that beyond them bringing gifts, gifts of worship? The nations were coming to fall before the king. The nations. So you might, have, you might remember the lyrics, we three kings of Orient are, right? They're coming from the east. They're coming from far away. All these nations right there before the manger are, are flocking to Jesus in worship. In the gospel, diversity was meant to come about. Again, not just that, but unity around our king, even from the start. And if that happens, if that continues to happen in us, it can be a major display of the existence of God and a major statement of what the gospel can do. But but here's another question I want to raise as I'm wrapping up here. Do we also give those around us a picture of and a hunger and thirst for the new world that's to come. When all nations surround his throne, would one day peace and justice perfectly reign? Or do they look at our lives in the church and think it looks more like hell? Would those around us say that we're helping or hurting racial relations and reconciliation in our country? Kind of afraid to ask the question. 
But I do know from this passage that Jesus in us, that's the answer. Back to Ephesians 3.8. See those words. The unsearchable riches of Christ. I feel kind of guilty that I didn't spend more time on those words. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Jesus is that great. There are so many riches in him, right? We'll have all eternity to dig into those. But together, we should start now. And part of those riches are what we see here, what he's doing in his church. The gospel is meant to bring people together in a way that displays to heaven and earth the glory and grace of God in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you do this in us? Would you allow us to see the gospel in all its glory, Lord? Would you allow us to see more and more of this mystery that's been revealed? Lord, would you make us people that um, don't just talk about loving you, but love our neighbors, that love our brothers and sisters and well. Um, Work your love in our hearts deeply and um, just make us people that, that want to keep digging in to those riches that we just read there. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.